This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this Resolution Foundation event. My name is Torsten Bell. I'm the Chief Executive of the Foundation. And we're going to talk about the budget. And we're going to do that because there is one. It's happening on the 6th of March. First audience participation question. Why is it happening on the 6th of March? Quite early for a budget. Not unparalleled, but why is it on the 6th, not the 15th like normal? Come on, team. It's quite a lot of you in here this morning. No one? Is it your skiing holiday, Tosin? I've been skiing in 20 years. I'd like to go skiing. It's too, it's too expensive. There's a cost of living crisis. So all the journos thought it was because there's going to be a May election. Guys, there's not going to be a May election. <laughs> you want there to be a May election, there's not going to be. Your autumn's going to get trashed. The reason that it's on the 6th of March is because on the 23rd of March, there is a fuel duty rise penciled in that needs to be cancelled in time because this is a tax-cutting budget and you don't have a budget followed a week later by a tax rise because they're not idiots. Yeah? That is why you've got a budget on the 6th of March. We're going to have a fuel duty cut as one of the measures, well, a cancelled rise, as one of the measures announced on the 6th of March. But that isn't all that's going to get announced, which is why we've got a whole event rather than a slightly esoteric monologue. <laughs> OK, everyone got that? To help us discuss what is actually going to be in the budget beyond the fuel duty rise being scrapped, we've got a great panel. So you're first of all going to hear from James Smith, who's a research director here at the Foundation and has led the team producing our preview of the budget, which is out today. Then I'm going to apologise in advance for some of what he's going to show you. Not because it's grim about the country, but because it's graphically unacceptable. <laughs> I think it might be the worst thing we've actually ever produced in the 10 years. I have been here in terms of the graphics, so I'm sorry in advance. That's like, some you'll know feedback. What, you'll know what, I mean, you know what I mean in about five minutes' time when you see the horror that is going to be unfolding on these screens uh, for all of you. Um, but not just James. Then you're going to hear from Helen Miller, who's the Deputy Director at the Institute for Fiscal Studies. And if you're not following, you all should be, because she'll teach you everything you need to know about the world of tax and some things you didn't need to know. But that's what experts do, ideally. And then you're going to hear from George Parker, who's the political editor of the Financial Times and often tells us what is going to happen in a budget, usually about two, three weeks before it actually happens. So that's the plan. And then all of you can get involved as always. We're going to do a few polls later and we'll do some questions. So go on to Slido and it is hashtag budget 2024. Hopefully, the chance of you're listening, this needs to be the only budget of 2024. Really don't want another one before the election. This year is bad enough as it is. And on that note, James, what is in your preview? What's going to happen? All right, Torsten, thank you for that. That's quite the setup. Um, so uh, thanks, thanks to, for coming to this. Thanks for watching, particularly people who battled through the rain this morning. It's a horrible day in Westminster. And thanks to my Resolution Foundation co-authors as well, particularly to Adam Corlett and Cara Pacitti for helping put the uh, preview slides together that we published this morning so definitely look at those there's much more detail in those than than i can go through um so it's also made very clear there is an election coming this year jeremy hunt told us that at the last fiscal event so the government will very much want to use the budget to set the scene for the economic row that's going to uh, be around the the election this year so what i'm going to do is really put all that in context and the starting point for that really is is what's going on with the economy right now, where in the real world, there's actually been some good news. So we, we shouldn't overlook this. Um, inflation is falling faster than we expected in November. It's about a percentage point 
lower in January than we had thought uh, towards the end of last year. But we've also heard that we're, we're in recession. Now, there's lots of debate about what kind of uh, recession that is, but the key point is growth is weaker um, at the start than, than we had expected. Now, if you're um, in the world of thinking about fiscal forecast headroom, so that's entirely my world, uh, and not the real world, then the combination of weak growth and low inflation is bad news. So that's a really sort of bad context to all this. Now, the reason I'm not going to show you tons and tons of bad news is really two things here. So first on this slide, you can see the Bank of England have actually got inflation now rising above its 2% target. So inflation is actually higher in the medium term, having been lower in the in the near term. Now, we don't think the OBR will go quite as far as that, but you have got offsetting news on inflation. And then the other thing that's going on here is we've we've learned that there's faster population growth. So we've got higher migration and that'll push up tax receipts mechanically and offset some of this uh, some of this bad news. So our view is this the cash size of the economy at least is going to be little changed. But what has changed a lot is really the interest rate environment. So Low inflation means uh, faster cuts being priced into markets for the Bank of England base rate. And you can see in these red dotted lines in the short term, there's about a percentage point lower, but in the longer term, more like half a percent. But this is big news for, uh, for the fiscal outlook. And it wouldn't be one of my presentations without a complicated fiscal fiscal chart. So just, just to... Um, uh, for those not poring over the public finances data this morning, we learnt that the current year uh, borrowing is a bit lower than we had thought. So the OBR will factor that in to its, uh, to its forecast for, uh, for, um, uh, for the budget. But if we look over the coming years, these, um, I'd say fairly hard to see, like green bars, are basically telling you that the effect of lower interest rates will push down on borrowing. So below the line here is good news for the government pushing down on borrowing. And what's offsetting that is the effect of the low, weaker growth and lower inflation. And that's falling over the forecast period because inflation is a little higher um, uh, over the medium term, but also because of that population growth. So the net of all that is that borrowing is down. It's borrowing, it's down by a little bit more in, uh, in the medium term. And the combination of those two things, we think, will give you slightly higher debt in the, in the near term on the government's for, uh, uh, official target measure. And then it'll be a little bit lower in the medium term. And what that really means is good news for the Chancellor in terms of having a bit of extra wiggle room here. So you shouldn't take any uh, sp specific number here too literally, something in the 20 to 25 billion um, headroom sort of uh, corridor seems pretty likely given the, the news that we've had. We've got an estimate of 23 billion, that's 10 billion larger headroom than they had back in November. So that's, that's good news. Uh, perhaps not as much good news as some people were talking about at one stage, but but uh, that's, um, that's that's potentially big, uh, significant good news here. Now the government will be very clear with what they want to do with any uh, good news, any fiscal 
wriggle room that uh, that they have. So um, very strong guidance to expect uh, tax cuts. Now, what 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 form of tax cuts might we be getting? Uh, so um, Torsten is right that we uh, we're very 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 likely. Uh, you know that that's as um, certain as an economist will ever get to uh, have some fuel duty cuts with the five p rise being scrapped. That's about two billion. Another billion if you cut the if you get rid of the inflation linked rise as well. Uh, they might delay that. They can do that in different ways, but that's almost certainly going to be part of the tax cutting package. Um, beyond that, um, there's really been pretty strong guidance to focus on income tax rates. Um, so 1p off the basic rate, which Rishi Sunak mentioned uh, during, he mentioned cuts to the basic rate during the um, leadership campaign for, for um, the Tory leadership. Um, that, that would cost about 7 billion to cut the basic rate. It's about 5 billion to do it on national insurance as they did uh, at the autumn statement. So we think something will come in that in that space. You know, that's what the, the speculation is really pointing us pointing us towards. And if they cut the basic rate of income tax, that basic rate will be at incredibly low levels. So we think going back to the start of the 20th century, you need to go to find actually lower levels. Now, as always, uh, we have some some suggestions about how you could do some personal tax cuts better. So if you cancelled the upcoming threshold freeze, that would cost about the same as basic rate cut, but would be much more progressive. And if you removed the child benefit benefit withdrawal uh, from uh, from the the tax system that would cost about four billion, and that would take some of the sharp edges out of the out of the tax system. But pretty clear that um, uh, the government is focused on rates, and um, really the combination of cutting rates and freezing those those thresholds that um, they've had frozen for a number of years now. The combination of those two things is really a takeaway from those on uh, low wages and a giveaway to those on higher wages. So you can see the, the net impact line, that's the thing to focus on here, comparing a basic rate, uh, 1p cut, and the 2024 threshold freeze. Um, those under 38,000 are worse off by the combination of those two things above you gain. So um, really, um, uh, a giveaway for higher for higher earners here. Um, so this is what Tolson was talking about, the, the sheer horror of this. So you, you very much have to think about those um, tax cuts that are coming in the context of what's already happened and what, what is coming here. And we are, are talking about tax cuts being sandwiched between tax rises. So there's a tax, a tax sandwich. Now, we have spent so long discussing what the right sandwich is, what the filling is, is it jam, is it red meat? So we've got we've got a, a sort of bit of red meat in there. Uh, that's the the tax cuts that are coming. And uh, and absolutely no self-respect at this point. Yes, that's that's fair. And there was a discussion about whether the top of the sandwich is what you get first or the bottom. Anyway, you, you get the picture. Sandwiches have been dominant. And when you're trying to put a presentation together early in the morning, you're quite hungry. It's very difficult to look, look at these. But um, we, um, we've had some 
Uh, tax rises already coming through. Those are mainly threshold freezes and corporation tax, and we've got some more coming. So let me show you that, uh, that sandwich step by step. Now, admire the sandwich icons. This is, this is serious work, so you know whereabouts you are in the sandwich. So at the top of the sandwich, you've got those tax cuts, those tax rises that have um, already come through. So that's about 20 billion across threshold freezes, corporation tax. We think we might get about 10 billion of new tax cuts uh, for next tax year, something like that. So if you combine a income tax rate cut with some, uh, with some fuel duty cuts, that gives you about 10 billion. And then there is more tax rises uh, along uh, already in store, uh, so about 17 billion. So there we have the icon with the, the tax at the bottom. So hopefully everybody has got that. Let me show you just a little bit more detail of that sandwich. So at the top of the sandwich, you're, you're getting these um, increase in taxes. This is comparing taxes relative to the sort of pre-pandemic level. And you can see the green bars, which are the threshold freezes um, boosting income tax receipts, and the um, sort of orangey bars, which are corporation tax, um, with the higher rate offset by uh, the investment tax cut. The combination of those two things is, is higher taxes uh, to the current year. Um, so taxes are going up. Um, we, um, unusually, the government has already told us that taxes will rise after the election. So this is a timeline. It's mainly uh, threshold freezes. There's a stamp duty rise that's uh, due to come in in April 25. Um, uh, but all this adds up to a very sort of unusual picture of a government coming into an election having already announced um, uh, these 17 billion in uh, tax increases. The other thing to bear in mind here is we're probably going to get council tax rises about 5%, so give us a sustained rise in council tax as well on top of that. And um, so the government is telling us that it's raising taxes. We're still in the bottom of the sandwich, people. I hope you're, you're keeping, keeping up with this. But history tells us that that's probably uh, not going to be the end of the story. So if you look back um, at changes in taxes here, uh, so below the line is tax cuts, above the line is tax rises. Um, the, the vertical dotted lines tell you where elections are. So you get some pre-election uh, tax cuts that happened a lot in the 90s. But what really hits you here is the post-election tax rises. So particularly uh, in the 90s, immediate um, increases after the election. There's a good chance that happens again. Uh, so history tells us we, we get tax rises. And then the other thing, as we have talked about extensively, is we are currently predicating our fiscal, our outlook for the public finances on a set of spending plans that are essentially undeliverable. So we, the, the thing to keep an eye on here is the green line at the bottom, which is basically telling you about departments that don't have some sort of spending guarantee in place and what the overall envelope, so remember the government only has to publish an overall envelope beyond the uh, spending review period. So beyond 24-25, we just have this one number for spending. And what that implies is very big cuts for unprotected departments. So higher population means 17% cuts in real per capita terms. That's huge. That'd be 
even bigger if uh, some of the spending cuts that people have talked about um, go further. So if we go from 1% um, real growth to three quarters of a percent, that's now something like a fifth in terms of the cuts for those unprotected departments. And it takes something like 30 billion to really get you back to where you were at that peak in 2022, 23. So um, really big fiscal fiction that is underlying the, the numbers and that will have to be confronted after the election. So that was my final piece of context, just to give you the key takeaways. Big budget coming for the election. Uh, we're looking, we're in recession, but um, lower rates are gonna, we think will boost the government's headroom by about 10 billion. Tax cuts are coming, uh, certainly in the form of fuel duty, but also very likely in the form of personal tax cuts. But that has to be viewed in the context of this tax sandwich of existing rises and post-election rises. And history tells us that even the ones that are factored in probably will be larger. That's me. I kind of want to say thank you, but thank you. Okay, well done. Good, Good job, James. James. Here's my promise to you all, that will never happen again. <laughs> no Resolution Foundation event ever will include a graphical representation of a sandwich, uh, particularly over 10 long slides, just to ram it in. Helen, I hope you've got more serious comments. Yeah. Well, I'm tempted to talk about sandwiches now, because I'm sitting here thinking, I often like the bread more than the filling, so I don't know. It's, 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 it's a, are you meant to like, not want to beat the bread in the filling? Anyway, I'm not what sure. I'm the gap in our life is not stretching the metaphor. Look, what, what I'm actually <laughs> going to talk about, I thought, I thought I'd make a few general points about um, the kind of bigger picture, tax cuts, net, uh, fiscal headroom stuff, and then say a little bit about what might see in the budget. So the question I keep getting asked recently is, should the Chancellor be using any headroom he has to cut taxes? Um, and I can, of course, see the political attraction to that. I think it's the closest the Chancellor gets to a free lunch because you get to potentially cut taxes without... Hon honestly, honestly, they're all leaving because they thought um, we were serious people. No, I, I'll stop there, I promise. So, but, but it's, um, it's, you get to cut taxes without at least putting up, without, without cutting spending immediately uh, or saying what you're going to do in the future and without breaking any, any targets. So in that sense, I can see the attraction of trying to use headroom. Um, of course, headroom is the buffer we have against things not turning out the way we expected. The aim should never be to erode your buffer so you have no buffer left. Um, I also think we fall into a, a chances fall into bad habits of responding asymmetrically to uh, headroom. So when it, when it turns out worse than we expected, that just ends up in a rise in borrowing, we sort of let it go. And when it's better than we expected, we spend it. And that's a guaranteed way to keep ratcheting up debt. So if you're going to respond to fiscal headroom, at least do it symmetrically, I think. Um, but more importantly, I think we should ideally get away from getting so locked into this narrow, what do we do about headroom? The government always has a choice about whether it wants to cut taxes. Um, and, and actually, it's not. It's rising taxes, right? Taxes are going up. I think whatever the government does at the budget, I'm almost certain this will be the biggest tax rise in Parliament on record. We will have taxes going to a, a record high in the UK, not internationally, but it will be high. Nothing they're going to do is stopping that. So they are doing this and they are penciling effectively spending cuts for the next budget. So, so for the next Parliament, so they are making big choices about the size and shape of the state. They're just not doing that in a kind of like an honest forthright, let's have it discussion all at once. It's coming this like, let's just focus on the headroom. So I guess a bit of a plea from me that let's, I, I know we'll focus on the headroom, but I really think it's a bit of a sideshow to the bigger, the bigger issues about the size of the state. Another thing I think you'd expect me to say is that we always have choices about the design of the tax system. So 
you know, we're talking about net, oh, do we have more or less overall? Of course, we already raise, you know, getting on towards a trillion pounds in revenue. We have huge choices about how we raise that. There are plenty of ways we could cut some taxes, raise other taxes, reshape how we do taxes that could be good for growth. It could change the redistribution. There are tons of choices. So I think this focus on headroom is actually very restricting. It, it narrows the debate quite a lot to what we could be discussing is how do we want to design, you know, the many taxes we have. Um, but all that said, I completely you know, know that in the run-up to the budget, in the next two weeks, I'll talk to everybody about what's the headroom, what they're going to spend it on, and I completely agree with James that there'll, there'll be some kind of tax cuts, right? And it'll be the retail offer that, they want, that the Conservatives want to use to try to um, you know, make the electorate feel good. So you know, I think, I, mean, I, think yeah, I, I would also agree with these guys that fuel duty is not going to be put up, right? You don't put up, I mean, they haven't put up fuel duty since 2010. They're not going to start doing it in election year. So I think we can safely bake that one in. Um, my guess is, is similarly that they'll also then look to personal tax cuts because they're big and salient. Um, had we been doing this event this time last year, I would have said that my money would have been on income tax because historically governments have cut rates of income tax and right, you know, increased rates of NICs. Richard Sunak said he would cut income tax. It wasn't that long ago that we were increasing NICs to pay for the health service effectively. Yeah. So it's quite an about turn that now we're looking at NICs cuts. Um, of course, again, you see the attraction there. They're cheaper. Um, and they're only NICs is only levied on earnings, so you also get for your pound, you get a bigger bang in terms of labour supply effects. So I can see why a government worried about what the OBR is going to score is going to be more attracted to national insurance contributions. I guess the flip side of that is that it won't benefit everyone. It won't benefit people, but pensioners being the obvious group who won't benefit from a NICS cut. So I guess there is still some politics um, there. I mean, one nice Torsten mentioned you, you get told things you don't want to know. One nice. Um, thing about NICs, I guess, is that we currently have a horrible wedge between earned income and unearned income, so dividends, pensioned income, being driven by national insurance contributions. So cutting NICs reduces that gap. I think that would be a step. I don't know, in my big ideal reform of the tax system, that would be one of the things you could do is reduce that gap, different ways of doing it, but this is one way of doing it. So cutting NICs helps a little bit there. Um, and of course, you could, if you were really feeling bold and reforming, you could just cut it for employees and not for the self-employed and also narrow some of that gap and that would make it a little bit cheaper at the margin so I think there's some things there um, so I think we'll get I think we'll get some kind of personal tax cut it's about scale people have talked about whether you do thresholds or child benefits they could I guess I think a lot of that's the politics um, I think actually the, the thing about thresholds economically there's not that much reason I think to favour thresholds over rates or the other way around but as I think it's the big point is as James was saying they have a big distributional difference um, because obviously everyone gets the same cash benefit from changing the personal allowance and that's not true for rates so in terms of the, the distributional chart they put in the budget school card will look very different depending on how they choose that so I guess there'll be some political calculation there about which part of the electorate do you want to be feeling good um, coming out of this or you know what sells um, what sells best um, the other, I guess the other things that they might be, might be, I mean, I think this is less likely now for headrooms lower, but obviously people have been talking and asked me about inheritance tax. Um, I imagine they won't find 12 to 7 billion to scrap inheritance tax now. Um, <laughs> but um, of course, but again, worth also noting that if they were worried about wanting to like, do something that looks nice and snazzy, they could remove some release, reliefs within inheritance tax. So I'm thinking of agricultural relief, business property relief. You could whack pensions into inheritance tax, I think it would be a good thing. Um, and that would allow you to pay for a cut in the headline rate. 
Now, that might upset some people who are currently using those reliefs, and maybe they vote for the Conservatives, so that might not be an election winner. But the point is... He, was, could... he was at the farmers yesterday. Exactly. That, that would be bold. Um, um, <laughs> um, but it's also, we did some work as well. It's also the case that you could, rather than just scrap those reliefs together, you could have some cap on those reliefs to keep most businesses and most farmers out of the inheritance tax net, but still raise a lot of money and be able to bring the head down line rate in it down in a catchy way. So the point being that if he wants things that says, I've brought inheritance tax down to 30%, there are things that he could look at without having to use fiscal headroom necessarily. Um, again, I'm not sure that's likely, but I'm just pointing out um, that he uh, could do it. And of course, there's lots of other changes that he could make. There's the entire tax system. You know, stamp duty would be a, a good one to cut. Uh, it's not clear politically that's what you go for. Um, and personally, again, worth saying that I think ideally these would be big decisions that were happening thinking about tax reform. Right? So if you're going to do something like cut stamp duty, ideally I think you'd want to reform tax, property taxes properly because the giveaway is the easy bit. It's the takeaway that's the hard bit. So I think ideally if, you're thinking, if this was the start of the next parliament, we wouldn't be sitting having this discussion. We wouldn't be talking about what taxes do we cut and what do we get away with. We'd be thinking about what's the spending and how do we actually manage to have departments that aren't you know, struggling. Um, and ideally you would be thinking about how do you want to reform property taxes and could you reform council tax and do stamp duty? So I think, you know, he could do something like that, but I think economically you don't want to do too many of the giveaways if you know there are takeaways you want to pair together. I think it's a, it's a problematic way. I mean, it makes it harder for the next government, whoever they are. Anyway, let me stop there because I've said lots. But um, I say, if in terms of priorities, um, this, won't, this won't be the priority. The priority will be what voters like. But ideally, I think we'd prioritise things that at least made the tax system design better and didn't make it harder to make it better in the next parliament because we are going to have difficult decisions in the next parliament. Very good. Thank you, Helen. Right, George, that's what we'd like ideally. <laughs> uh, what's going on with this whole... Is it, is it politics? What's going on? I'll do the dirty politics end of this uh, discussion. That's, that's what I had you is that, is that my? That's is what that, you're here for, yeah. That's my role. Actually, talking of the dirty politics, the sandwich icon reminds me a little bit of how you delivered bad news to Gordon Brown if you were working with him, except it wasn't bacon you put in the sandwich. It was something else, wasn't it, when you had bad news to deliver? What is this? This is too complicated a reference. Really? What, some, what, some people what know what is... Thank you. Oh. Yes. That was All how right, you... I prefer this sandwich. <laughs> oh, so how you deliver bad news to Gordon Brown, you put something unsavoury in the middle of two slices of good, anyway, good news. Keep which, going, George. Which keep is, going. A, is a little bit keep like going. So listen, this, this um, may or may not be the last big fiscal event before the election. Uh, no, Torsten's hoping that it, it is. I, I think the simple calculation on this, frankly, is if uh, Richard Sunak and Jeremy Hunt think that there's the prospect of getting some better forecasts from the OBR in the second half of the year, then... Why wouldn't you have another autumn statement before the election and do another round of tax cuts? If, on the other hand, the economic situation seems to be deteriorating and the OBR are going to come back with worse forecasts, <laughs> forget it. That's someone else's problem. Leave it till after the election. So I wouldn't exclude the possibility that we have, we're back here again in, um, in six months' time before the election. Thank you for that. Sorry to say. Um, basically, we're now very much in the uh, arena of uh, downplaying of expectations by the Treasury um, in terms of what's going to be possible on March the 6th. And your, your expectation on the, on the headroom figure, 23 billion, is considerably higher than the Treasury insiders are sort of saying that they've been given by the OBR now. Now, I'd be interested to know a little bit later on why your figure is, is different, actually, to the one that appears to be floating around from the initial OBR forecast. And I said that you have to aim off here because there is expectation management going on. But the, the general impression being given is that the headroom before any measures is roughly where they, where they were at the end of the 
November or some statements about 13 billion. Now, if you're right, and I think you have to allow for the fact that it's going to, they, they want a surprise on the upside, then that's going to be given considerably more room for manoeuvre than they're claiming they have at the moment. Generally, having raised expectations in the first few weeks of the year, lots of people, including at Davos, saying that tax cuts are coming down the track. The language now has been moderated considerably. I, I noticed this morning, actually, that Laura Trott, the Chief Secretary to the Treasury, in response to the new public, um, the public finance figures, was talking about we're beginning to turn a corner, whereas uh, I think Rishi has um, been talking about having turned a corner already. So the, the language is being moderated slightly. Um, uh, but look, this is an intensely political event, obviously, um, with the election coming down the track. I think most people still expect it to be in the, the election to be in the autumn. Um, and politics will be the main motivating factor of the budget. But I think we should actually be charitable here and say that we have to allow for the fact that the Chancellor might do some things which are the right thing. Um, and actually, this, there, there is a, a recent precedent for this, which was the autumn statement. There were 20, roughly £20 billion of tax giveaways, of which £10 billion were the full expensing plan for business, which probably gains exactly zero votes in a general election. And you speak to people at Number 10 and the Treasury who say that it's a recurring theme of discussions with the Prime Minister and the Chancellor that they want to be seen to be doing the right thing. So I think there will be stuff in the budget which might surprise us in being actually good for the long-term health of the country as well as being just a straightforward pre-election yeah. uh, bribe to the voters. And there's a reason for that because, you know, most people, I think, you know, if you're being realistic, would expect, looking at the opinion polls, that it's unlikely that Rishi Sunak will be Prime Minister after the election. Uh, and Jeremy Hunt won't be the Chancellor. And if you're in that situation, you've got to, uh, you've got to think about your political legacy, haven't you? And if you look back to the pre-97 economic record of Ken Clark when he was Chancellor, he'd, that period is remembered fondly. And Clark is seen as a, having been a good Chancellor, laying the economic foundations for, for Blair uh, from 97 onwards. So I think they will be thinking about their legacy as well as about the crude uh, political uh, objectives of this budget, which I'm now about to talk about, which are... Personal tax cuts, we've discussed them already. Plainly, the objective is to get as much money into as many people's pockets as possible. Um, income tax obviously has the advantage of being the easiest thing to get into a Daily Mail headline. Um, they'd love to cut it by two percentage points from 20 down to 18%. And it is worth remembering, you pointed this out, actually, the, and I've done a story about this today, that people are starting to recall the fact that in 2022, when Sunak was standing against Liz Trust for the Tory leadership, he said that if he won the next election, he wanted to cut income tax from 20% basic rate from 20% down to 16% by 2029. And I would be, uh, and the story I've written this morning is saying that that could well be a feature of the Tory manifesto and that this budget could be a down payment on that sort of, we're on the right track, we're heading on this ambitious path uh, of tax cutting. Um, national insurance would be the more obvious thing to go for in terms of... Um, you know, leaving aside the headline issue. And Rishi Sunak was talking about this recently, wasn't he? He was saying you can do it quickly. It applies to the whole UK. Um, we it, should definitely come back to that, by the way. Yes. There's a big difference in income tax and national insurance. Yeah. In Scotland, particularly. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and they're talking about smart tax cuts. Look, if you're talking about smart tax cuts, then tax cuts that benefit people who are working and promote work yeah. are probably more effective and could get you a positive score from the OBR in terms of future outlook for growth. So... National insurance would be the sensible thing for them to do. It's cheaper as well. It's about four and a half billion, I think, per one percentage point cut compared with seven billion. Um, but as I mentioned, income tax gets you the, the better headlines. The threshold things, 
I mean, there's a lot of pressure from Tory MPs for them to do s stuff specifically around this ludicrous £50,000 threshold where you end up in paying extraordinary marginal tax rates, particularly if you have children. Well, only if you have kids, yeah. And you know, yeah, only if you had kids. But um, that's a that's a thing. Again, money is quite scarce, and it's all about the, all about priorities here on March the sixth. And do you waste well, waste? Do you spend some of your your money helping people with kids earning more than fifty thousand, as opposed to a more generous across the board tax cut? So those are the things that he's going to have to um, have to calculate. I'd imagine in the budget also there'll be some targeted spending increases as well. Um, one of the interesting things, I think, about this whole debate is that the opinion polling seems to suggest that the public would actually rather, if there's any money lying around, that it's spent on improving public services rather than tax cuts. Now, whether that's actually true or not, I mean, Conservatives are convinced that tax cuts are the, the way to change the political narrative. Um, but it doesn't seem to have worked with the national insurance cuts so far, as far as we've been able to tell. So I think there will be some money, for example, for the NHS and for the childcare um, uh, plan, which is appears to be struggling under a lack of a lack of money, um, and then of course there's this question about whether you fund the tax cuts through penciling in more spending cuts, after, or at least a tighter spending squeeze after the election. The spending assumptions you were talking about there, James, and sort of I think we I talked to you about this talks on the other side. You're sort of piling fiction upon fiction. You know, instead of having a one percent uh, real increase in department spending, you cut it to 0.75 percent or something like that. That releases about six billion quid. Quite handy, handy money. This is the thing that Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves have been talking about being the scorched earth, salted earth policy of the government. That you max out the government credit card, any available money in the headroom, you splurge on tax cuts, you leave someone else to clear up the mess in terms of the public services after the election. I think the really interesting thing about this politically is what happens immediately after the Chancellor sits down and Keir Starmer stands up because in the budget it's the leader of the opposition and the shadow chancellor who speaks. Because it seems to me quite plausible, in fact highly likely, that Labour Party will actually vote for exactly the scorched earth policy they spent the last few months <laughs> decrying. Because think about it, if, if, you're, if the chancellor stands up and announces income tax or national insurance cuts, are Labour going to vote against, vote against them? And I've spoken to numerous people in the shadow cabinet who say, no, we're going to vote for them. They don't want a divide, political dividing line opening up on tax. That's what the Conservatives want. That's what Labour are determined to avoid. And if, if you look back to the autumn statement, I think I'm right in saying this, but Labour supported every single measure in the autumn statement. I don't think they opposed any of them, did they? Uh, no, they, last March was the last time we had a row on the pensions tax stuff, yeah. So if you think about what's going on here is that you've got the Labour Party shadowing, and I won't say this, of course, shadowing the Chancellor and his economic policy because they don't want any gap political dividing lines to open up before the election. Now, if they vote for the for tax cuts that we expect to see, then the budget this time next year is going to be very, very tough, isn't it? And as you, you're bringing... Remember, we won't even be able to wait that long because you'll have to do a... Say it's an October election, you've got, yeah. to, do a, you've got to do your one-year spending review before, before kind of the 10th of December, yeah. roughly, and even that's tough. And your, your chart up there was... Excellent. Actually, I've, I've been meaning to look this up, so thanks for doing the research on this. Which one? The, one? the one about tax rises after an election. You know, every single chancellor comes in, has a look at the books. Oh, my God, it's even worse than we thought. <laughs> Who'd have thought that? Even though it's in the OBR book every, every six months, um, taxes will have to go up to, to, to bridge the gap there. So the politics of this are, are absolutely fascinating. I mean, I could talk about some of the other things that we might get in the budget. There's going to be, I imagine, something to boost capital markets. 
um, something that the Chancellor is very concerned about. Britisa has been discussed to encourage people to invest in British companies, a bit expensive. We hear a lot about the NatWest share sale coming up. Tell Sid. I don't think we hear very much. I think we should be hearing more about. Tell everyone what this is, because I, I, no one ever asked me about this, and it's a bit weird what's going on. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, the government's looking for a retail sale of shares. It's remaining holding in NatWest, and they want to get it moving very quickly, possibly by in, in June or July, if it represents value for money. This has two attractions for the government. One is that you um, try to generate popular interest in the <laughs> stock market again, which is something they're vexed about. The other thing politically, of course, is it allows you to, to end the cycle. You know, it was Labour's financial crash back in 2008. Yeah. This is the final, get rid of the final vestiges of it. It costs money, of course, because you're going to have to discount the shares to, to do the retail sale. So, but it seems to me that they are trying to do that. Um, they do you think we are going to discount the, discount the shares? Well, I'm not quite sure how else you would. Well, I don't think it makes any sense either way. So either we're, either we're running a marketing campaign to persuade people to buy shares they can buy anyway, like any shares, yeah. which is just a waste of money on a marketing campaign, or we're discounting the shares, in which case we don't need a marketing campaign because we're, we're saying, would you like a bit of money? Yeah, have some and some rich money. people will say, yes, I would like some money, and then we don't need a marketing campaign. <coughs> so I don't really understand the whole thing, but there's a lot of just civil servants working on it, so keep going, team. Well, there, there are, there are. Um, and you know, you, you heard um, Jeremy Hunt at the last uh, budget talking about uh, He's, they they're very keen on it. Tell Sid yeah. and all that sort of stuff. I mean, you know, it's. it's I mean, the legacy of Tell Sid is we did give away a load of shares to people cheaply. We did. There's a reason why public sector net worth went through the floor. <laughs> Indeed. So there's probably, I think there'll be something on that. There'll probably be something on housing as well, which number 10 are very keen yeah. to do, although uh, the Treasury are very reluctant to introduce measures which simply pump up demand rather than why don't we ever do anything about increasing supply? So this is do we have a replacement for help to buy? That sort of thing and guaranteed mortgages and, and so forth. Um, inheritance tax, I still think it's very unlikely. Jeremy Hunt really hates the idea. It's, I mean, it sends a very strange signal about your priorities, I think, doing anything on inheritance tax. So I think that's more likely to be a manifesto thing. And in terms of the, the overall scope of the budget package, last time around there were 110 separate growth measures, um, which even we in the FT couldn't get our heads around all of them. Um, but this time it's going to be a much simpler package. So I'm told that there are far fewer measures in there, and you know the headline. The headlines they want will be about you know the tax cutting agenda. So um, with that, uh, Torsten, I'll probably stop because I mean they need they need a narrative that basically they need a, a narrative that the economy is now on the right track. Nobody, as we've just been discussing, is going to feel better off before the election, or not really. I mean they're going to feel they're going to look at their bank statement at the end of the month and realise actually. And the one thing, they, they're actually quite annoyed, I think, about the idea that you're hearing a lot about tax cuts, but nothing seems to change my what's left at the end of the month. Am I being hoodwinked here? So I think there's a, there's a political danger for the, for the Chancellor in that. But I think what they need to be able to say is that the, you know, we're coming out, out of the shallow technical recession and we're on the path back to lightness. And that will be the message. That's what will be on the poster, George. Coming out of path, the shallow recession. Path back that's, to be, that's, how you, that's how you get the people <laughs> excited. Right, thank you very much, George. Very good. <laughs> Right. The, um, uh, so we're, let's go through the economy and the public finance forecast side. Then we'll get to James's disgraceful sandwich, a bit on the cuts, a bit on the rises. Um, and then we should touch on the spending side of the, the world as well, because as Helen said, there's quite a lot going on in that space, even if people aren't talking about it much. As I said at the beginning, if you want to ask questions or vote in the polls, it's hashtag budget 2024 on um, Slido. So what, well, given that this is, I mean, James slightly hid it in his presentation because he, otherwise, because he, he was so keen to get to the bad graphics. But the, um, there's just loads of people. 
So like the, the, popula uh, the population changes are probably, if anything, the biggest bit of the forecast that's changed. Because basically, it's not been very long since the last forecast, yeah? It's November 6th of March. Not much has actually happened. Inflation, yes, is a bit lower. Yes, we've had a recession declared, but it's not that far off what we were expecting. Really, what we've learned from the OBR is that there's just loads more people. We've learned two things. There's more people, and the population is expected to keep growing faster. So bigger level of population. How many did we find? A million? Seven, like we found quite a lot of people. The, um, it's not that we haven't you know, give you massive faith that we're on it on the counting of the people problem anyway, but we found like, a lot of people and then they're growing faster. So in, in your numbers, James, if we didn't have the people, we'd have we didn't have as fast growth of people, then you wouldn't be having your perky head on. Yeah, yeah. So, so so George's question about why this, these numbers are a little higher. I think basically we. We're including some data that I don't think will have been included in the OBR forecasts up to now. So we're including some of last week's data. Um, the OBR will send their final economy forecast to the Treasury tonight. So you'll you'll get your updated mm. gossip tomorrow, I, I presume. So mm. that, I that's, hope not. That, that's the uh, inappropriate. That's <laughs> the. Uh, um, that's the sort of timing of all this. And as Tulson says, you know, I, I think there is a big decision here about how the OBR treats this faster migration that the ONS say is likely going forward. So that just to be clear, what's happened is a lot more people have arrived in the country over the past few years. But then what really matters for the forecast is the, the extent to which they continue to, to arrive in the country and how much um, they add to the, to the working population. So I think we've been sort of fairly conservative about this and said, um, you haven't got um, big levels changes because we know where the, what, where the tax data are. So we, you know, we've, we're seeing that this morning, for example. But um, in future, if you um, have this sort of higher, something like seventy thousand more migration inflows per year, that that will boost your tax. And because you you're, you're spending numbers are fixed in nominal terms, fixed in cash terms, you get this boost from tax receipts without really getting the spending offset. Hmm. So on that, that's a really important last point. So the, the spending cuts per person for after the election, the reason they're bigger in the, that chart James showed you 17% versus the 14% we thought back in the autumn is because the population's growing faster. So we're pretending we can have more people. They're giving us more tax revenues, which is why we're showing you the headroom turning up. And we're pretending those more people don't need a penny of extra spending on public services. Hmm. Have any of you met people? They do require a penny of spending on extra public services. So the um, so that is why the that wasn't that wasn't the fiction you were, the fiction on top of fiction you were talking about in your piece. But it is the same thing, which is we're just pretending mm. that we can have no change at all to our public spending totals in the next parliament, despite having like millions more people. The, um, and that is a bit silly, generally. The um, on the Helen, on the I mean. These numbers are all in the roundings to some degree. Like 10 billion here, 10 billion there. I don't want to make you sound like you're uh, relaxed about large amounts of money, but these are rounding errors yeah, in they're relevant. finances. Yeah, of course. Yeah, we're t with the overall government budget, we're talking in trillions, right? So, and I, maybe I'm just looking back with rose tinted glasses, but I, I reckon a decade ago we, we didn't get so hung up on on the kind of on these kinds of like headroom is it is it this many or that many? Because we know you need a headroom, you should have a headroom. It maybe it bubbles around a bit. We know that, but 
but now we've got laser focus. I think journalists, especially, and I'm not looking, but, but I think are oh, because of the politics more focused right. on the. Right. Is it, no, no, but but because of the way it's driven, but it's become more of the narrative, right? And it, like politicians want to, want it to be like, is it going to be twelve or thirteen or thirteen and a half? And it's irrelevant. I mean, in terms, it matters for the politics of what you can actually do on budget day without breaking your rule. But in terms of like ignoring all these rules, what are we trying to do? We're trying to run an economy that has you know public services, the size of the state that we've all voted on, and. Uh, that we all agree is the right idea, and we're not busting debt. That's that's the point here. Whether we've got you know an extra two billion here, and you know, and debt is just about minusculely, just about if you really squint, falling at the end of the horizon, and, you know, in a way that could be busted. It's just it all just seems a bit just a bit petty. And again, and ignoring the bigger questions about what size of the states we want, how much do we want to spend, do we want to spend more on these people? We've got an age, it's not just we have more people, people are ageing, people get more expensive when they're older unless you want to not provide for them. And this is not new, we've been telling this for decades, but now it's coming home to roost because it's now that actually the population, the over 65s are increasing as a share of the population. So we know all of that's happening. And that's, you know, well, we, where the fiscal headroom, frankly, is 20, 30, 10, is nothing compared to the what do we do with more with millions more people, older people, and government departments that are, that are struggling. Mm. Right. The, um, I mean, don't undermine the OBR's kind of sense of self worth. Oh no, look, <laughs> no, 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 no. Of course, I love the OBR. The OBR is <coughs> a great institution. Of course, I have to produce. And we, you know, we'll be pouring over the numbers too. Right? We have these. Our version of these numbers, and we'll be there on budget night alongside you guys. You know, worrying about the decimal places. And of course, and you have a fiscal rule, and you shouldn't just be you know, breaking it. But the bigger picture really is, is that what's the size of the state? What is it doing? And how do we deal with ageing? Nothing, not, not, you, that is irrelevant in terms of the fiscal headroom. Okay, let's do a bit of, um, first on the economy, on the pot, does it matter that there's the recession being announced is the backdrop to the uh, budget? Because it's a bit weird, isn't it? It's like, we've turned the corner, and it's like into the recession. <laughs> and we will yeah. hopefully be coming out of the recession. We may well be coming out of the recession. It's not a very big one in terms of what's happening right now. Most of the news is about the past. But how is that? How do you actually do that in a chamber? I think. I mean, I think politically it's important. I don't think economically it's just a statistical rounding error, isn't it? But um, you know, last week economists were calling it a technical recession and a shallow recession, and Andrew Bailey was saying nothing, nothing to see here. Move along. It's um, what we expected. The politics of it are that it's Rishi's recession. That's what, that's what Rachel Reeves says. That's what Rachel Reeves says and the Liberal, Liberal Democrats say. And I mean, like, that's, that's a, it's a nice slogan. And the problem is for Rishi Sunak is that, you know, he, he promised at the beginning of 2023 that he was going to grow the economy. And at the end of the year, the economy was getting smaller. Yeah. And that is actually politically a salient point. Nobody, no prime minister wants an R word hanging around. And the problem is, unless there's a revision of the data, we will be in recession. Which there could be. Which there could be, of course. We, but yeah, the recession word could be hanging around him until May. You're going to get, you get those forecasts. But in terms of punters, so if I'm a punter, I care about so household incomes last year actually a bit better than people expected. Yeah. Uh, all of them didn't feel like that, but they didn't shrink. They kind of grew a little bit. Wages a bit better than people expected, and unemployment 3.8 percent. Like that's not what a recession normally looks like. So does it matter? Like we, we think we hate recessions is because we get loads of us losing our jobs. I think it reinforces the way people think about their personal situation. It is true that real wages are starting to rise. I think they've yeah. been rising above inflation for, yeah. for the last five or six months, haven't they? So people are starting to feel, you know, things are starting to move in the right direction. But I still think if you're feeling bad about your personal financial situation and there's, you see the word recession appearing in headlines, you can do like Google it. counts on how many times the word recession suddenly turns up, that, then you sort of think, well, actually, that, that's probably why and whose fault is it? And at the moment, the public don't seem to be very generous in sort of um, giving people the benefit of the doubt. So what is that? So how do you manage that politically? Should, he be, so should you be saying <coughs> you turn the corner or is that a risk of just pissing people off? 
I think that's I think that's fine. I mean, in a way, you know, if you set the bar low enough, then that's um, that's good, isn't it? You are, you're, you're, um, you, you can you should be able to make the case fairly convincingly that by the middle of the year we are coming out. Not just we probably won't want to repeat the word recession, but with the economy's moving in the right direction, it's turned a corner, and so on. So that the, you know, ultimately, the, all elections are about whether it's time for a change or we're on the right track. Don't turn back. I mean, that's the mm -hmm. the old adage of elections and having dallied with various alternative things like being the change, the conservative message at the election will now be... Good old-fashioned. We're on the right track, don't turn back. And you know, there will be evidence that the economy is pointing in the right direction, but whether the public are in a mood to give the government the credit for that yeah. is, uh, the opinion polls suggest, rather not at the moment. Right, let's do a bit on the public finance forecast. We've got two questions here. <coughs> the, um, you guys can take these. So we've got first question online, which is, uh, referencing uh, your colleague Chris Giles, who wrote a piece last week about fiscal fairy tales. So uh, I mean, I'm not going to go through the whole piece because it was quite a long one. Um, but it basically said um, <clears throat> it's not looking great. Debt is on an upward debt is on an upward trajectory, not just in the UK but elsewhere. People probably won't deal with it because nobody deals with these things until the crisis hits. Um, uh, the relevance of the budget is, of course. The forecast will show debt falling in the real world. Debt isn't actually falling because recessions happen reasonably, re like proper recessions, not this one, happen reasonably regularly. They cost you a lot of money. And so your debt ratchet um, goes up. So first question, are we just going to muddle through until a big crisis? And then the, well, hopefully no crisis, but if one turns up. And there's a related question here, which is on, here we go, which is basically markets. Is there a problem? Does it matter that they're going to splurge all the money, headroom, up to a number? Because basically... Um, markets are already having to fund a lot of QT. One of you can tell the world what QT is. Right, come on, James. Basically, have we got a fiscal problem or not? And are we going to do anything about it? So, so the, the key thing here is we have a debt problem. We don't have a borrowing problem. So if you actually look at what the government is borrowing, and particularly if you look at the current balance, so that, that's day-to-day -day spending, we're by the end of the November OBR forecast, we're, and we'll probably be in similar place by the time we, we end up um, in, the, in, the, uh, in a couple of weeks. But we're basically back to levels of borrowing not seen since the turn of the century. So really low borrowing. But the government is really struggling to get this debt measure falling. And it's focused on this um, debt excluding the Bank of England. And one thing that's going on here is there's a problem because uh, the Bank of England is selling lots of its um, or the, lots of the, the government debt that it bought during the financial crisis. So unwinding its QE and it's making losses on those because interest rates are now higher than uh, they were when they when they bought them. And by excluding the Bank of England what, what, from your debt measure, what you what you have is that you're sending money to the Bank of England to uh, make good those losses. So you, you don't want your central bank um, in negative net worth. You don't want your central bank bust. Um, but you're not recording it arriving somewhere else in the public sector. And I, you know, you can debate whether that's a sensible thing to do, but it's one of the key reasons why, despite quite low borrowing, it's a real struggle to get debt down. So the Treasury Select Committee actually, interestingly, sort of said, maybe you should um, ha strip that out and have a total debt and that would be much easier to get debt falling. So headroom would be something like 40 billion on that basis. So that would be sort of really transformational. But I mean, all this, we wrote a long paper on this, so you should all, all read that. But the, 
the, the problem with this debt falling rule is that at, all it's doing is essentially stabilizing that high level of debt. It's not actually bringing it down, creating space for policy in future. And having high debt, by the way, pops up as, as risks. So that makes your position more risky. So I'm not saying Liz Truss wouldn't have happened without high debt, but it definitely means you have to pay more attention to the checks and balances. But the track we're on um, at the moment is debt heading off um, with a debt stabilizing rule off into higher territory. Because every time you have a recession, a downturn, you need to do more fiscal policy, it rises again. And if you're never actually bringing it down, then you're on a, on a bad path. So that's the big problem here that nobody is talking about. Okay. I was going to add to that and say that um, uh, another thing that's happening that's, that's not helping the problem is the low growth. So I think we got used to, kind of more historically, the economy would grow at much more healthy levels than it is currently. And you could grow your way out of some of that debt. So the growth, growth was, the economy was growing faster than the debt pile. So some of that dealt with the debt to some degree. And that's just not what's happening now. So I think we got used to the borrowing being the constraint. And you used to, we used to talk about, you can't borrow anymore because you've borrowed you know, enough to your borrowing restraint. And that's just not happening anymore. And in fact, now you've got a situation where because of the low growth and the high levels of debt, if you want to have debt at least stabilizing, if not falling properly, you need a primary surplus, right? You need to actually raising more in tax than you're spending. Um, so that just echoing what James said, that the constraint now is not that we couldn't borrow more because of market reasons, it's that um, you can't be borrowing more and have your debt falling. You've got to be um, uh, having this primary surplus, which is actually really quite different to what we saw um, in, in, the, in the decades before that. So it's, it's a much harder public finance situation. Um, Since there's a question on this as well, that, that is why, like why is Labour dumping its 28 billion pounds? That's why because the, surplus, the, the primary surplus you need at the back end of the period to have your debt falling is higher, is more difficult to achieve than it was in 2021 when they announced their policy. And in the end, the maths is what has won out. Right, let's well, do some so voting. So can I quickly ask a quick, quick question? I, You're going to be here answering questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, trying to remember what the depth of GDP ratio was at the, before the financial crash hit. I think it was in the 38, high 38, 38, 38%. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's about, about 90% now? 96, yeah. Um, I think when the Conservatives came in, it had gone up to about 67, yeah. memory, something like that, yeah. after the financial crash. And it's, but yeah, we've more it, than doubled it so then, over the course of the... I mean, so that's a big, that's a big constraining factor in all this. Well, the, so it is, yes. Although it's not actually, because basically nobody is actually, although, they both, although both parties are making a big deal out of debt falling, as I say, it's not really falling. So it's not actually, like, in some politics, like, we're not Germany. There's not an actual, like, real effort here to really get these numbers down. We're not Germany in lots of ways. Uh, but the, um, Right, I want to move us on to tax cuts. So we're going to do a vote, first of all. What is going to get cut, people? The, um, so on your Slido now, but those of you here. So who's getting a tax cut? So we're, we're going to editorialise around this a bit. So national insurance rates are going to get cut, are they? That means... Let's assume that's just workers, so you can have your bashing the self-employed bit. Under national insurance, uh, just to reinforce this, national insurance rates, UK-wide, income tax rates, complicated, to put it marginally. But in Scotland, big deal, because obviously, if you haven't been paying attention, tax rates in Scotland, it's not only we've now got lots of tax bans, but the taxes, tax rates have gone up reasonably materially, particularly for higher earners in Scotland. And if you cut income tax in England, it will complicate Scotland's chance of balancing their budget, which, if anyone, again, is paying any attention, is looking very, very hard to do at the moment for the Scottish Government. So that's a big deal. Mm. The um, uh, income tax, so the pensioners get some, always what Rishi Sunak has preferred, but you've got the Chancellor out on all of the autumn making the case that national insurance cuts are better than income tax cuts. 
basically, which is a complete reversal of all of the last 25 years of tax policy, but is obviously right. The Chancellor was right in the autumn. Uh, marginal tax rates. So this is the, if you're tapering away pensions, um, sorry, child benefit from parents once they earn over 50 grand, you end up with these ludicrous. You can actually, if you've got enough kids, I mean, you shouldn't have too many kids, not for the planet, just because of your sleep patterns. But <laughs> if you've got loads of kids, you can actually get up to 100% tax rates. For 50, if you're earning in that, in that tax band, because you're losing so much child benefit for each pound you earn, the, um, that's just another bit of punishment for too many kids. The, um, actually, interestingly, there is a chart in James's report which you should look at, which is uh, slightly surprised me, but about who wins from different kind of tax cuts. It's more middle income than you would expect if you move on getting rid of this ludicrous tax rate, because you think 50k, these are rich people, right? Which they are on average, but because they've got lots of kids. Um, so they're in families that are poorer for a given level of income in terms of what it actually means for their consumption patterns. Um, and the rest, actually, it's more middle-heavy than you would think compared to almost any other income tax cut. So, I mean, they're not going to do it this time for lots of reasons, but it is more sensible uh, than other cuts. Not to affect the vote here. but this is not. I didn't say it was an even democracy. We, there's no electoral commission in the Resolution Foundation. Uh, and then there's inheritance tax cuts, which, you know, do you want to give James Dyson um, even bigger tax cuts than he's already got? Or Rishi Sunak. Ooh, George, you see, he looks such a cynical mm. little politician. Wow. Well. <laughs> yeah. I think that is a factor. But not his wife, he's a non dom. Yes, exactly. You can, you, go on, you better explain that to everyone, remind everyone how that matters. Oh, um, so uh, we tax differently people whose permanent home is deemed to be outside of the UK, um, and we have different rules for inheritance tax versus income taxes. So I think Rishi's wife has said that she will not use the remittance basis, so she'll pay. Uh, income tax on her foreign dividends, for example, she'll pay tax on that. But I don't think we, she said. Well, so she's not actually becoming domiciled. She's keeping non-domiciled. Well, I'm, I'm not an expert in Mr. Sunak's wife's financial affairs. Well, you walked into this one, Helen. I think it is possible. Going to get a lot of questions so about this can, in the next year, so you might as well. You can, like, you can choose. You can. There are millions of non-doms in the UK. I mean, probably some of you here are non-doms. If you weren't born in the UK, anyone. Um, I'm married to a non-dom. You, you, you what? Lots of, no, but not the, not the rich kind of oligarch type. Well, why not? Like, just the not born in the UK type. But most yeah. non-doms live here. They're just foreign born. They pay taxes here as normal. It's nothing. It's, it's, it's got, if you have a high amount of wealth offshore, you can choose to elect to be taxed on a basis, which means that you don't get taxed on your foreign income unless you bring it into okay. the UK. Right. For the rest of you, if you are going to marry a non-dom, it may as well be a loaded one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, right. Let's bring up your results. What are people expecting to see? On the screen, I'll give you a clue. You all believed Rishi Sunak quite a lot. Well, yeah, that's quite oh, wow, look at that. So no inheritance taxes. As George said, it's not going to happen. It'd be political mm. madness. Um, they're not going to bother with doing child benefit, even though they probably should. Income tax. Well, I'm, I don't, I've never liked democracy anyway. I am for, I think, the balance has moved towards national insurance. But who else wants to come in? Helen, what would you vote for? It's not what I'd vote for as a citizen necessarily, but I think in terms, of, I, I, th I think in terms of what will happen, I think um, I think national insurance is a, is a, a I mean, I wouldn't have said this this time last year because the, the the trend over time has been so much mm. towards cutting income tax as the headlines. I really thought I couldn't see a national insurance cut ever happening, um, but because it, that has happened now for the reasons we discussed, um, partly including I think every everything that goes through OBR books will be poured over, um, and it's a bit cheaper, so you'd have more room to do other bits and pieces. Um, then I sort of think there's more chance on, but 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 pensions matter. I don't, I don't know, know, but I I think there's it's more weight on. I would have ruled out national insurance this time last year, 
and now I think it's a real front runner. Mm. Yeah. And that is because of Jeremy Hunt, basically, isn't it? Yeah. Because of what you say, he wants to feel like he's doing some sensible things, and yeah. cutting national insurance is definitely. And to George's point, I think in terms of legacy, he, they, they also scrapped the class two national insurance contributions on self-employed, yeah. and they brought the, you know a bit close together. I think they will be able to you know write some things down. So I try to rationalise some bits. I mean, maybe yeah. they're small in the grand scheme of things, but yeah. I think there is something to that point about wanting to have some kind of legacy that's not just tax. Cuts. James, what are we going to get? It's definitely worth. Well, I, I I think they want to do the income tax thing. I think they, you know, there's a chance that the, the next thing makes more sense. They get to do maybe a little more. Maybe they do 2p on, on national insurance. We're right on, on Hedrick. The thing people should have in mind here is it's really hard to make the case where we've got incredibly high income taxes. That's the sort of problem here. If you look historically at marginal rates of tax, they, they've been falling um, uh, across income distribution. Um, and if you look compared to other countries, it's pretty tricky to make that comparison. You know, the, the UK is still towards the, the lower end. As I mentioned earlier, you know, historically that lower tax rate um, is incredibly low. So people should have that in mind. We are not, you know, this is not some crazy high tax country that is sort of taking all your, all your income. The taxes are already low. Uh, they're low as a sh not as a share of GDP, they're low average tax rates for earners. I'm talking about, yeah, personal tax rates. Income tax rates. Are. Yeah. George, what are we going to get? You got your um, ear close to the political pulse. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean... Do you have an ear next to pulse? You could do, I suppose. Why not? Sort of, yeah. um, look, I mean, I think the obvious thing to do and the sensible thing to do would be to do national insurance for the arguments that Jeremy Hunt made very clear in the autumn statement. Yeah. Um, and you've heard him, and you've heard Rishi Sunak talking about it recently. My gut feeling is just because of the pure political attractiveness of going for income tax that they might end up doing that. Plus, of course, the fact that Rishi Sunak personally has talked about cutting income tax rates at yeah. a lot in the past. So I think it's going to be, I honestly, I honestly don't know which way they'll go on it. One of those two, though. But I think it'll be one of those two because they want to get money into the pockets of as many people as possible. Have any of you in the room <laughs> noticed your national insurance cut since January? None of you. You're all just too minted to pay attention. Yes. Uh. Some, more than one of you has noticed. It's pretty chunky. 2p. None of you have noticed. It's, you're not, and you don't even look, you know, that old. There's some non-pensioners <laughs> roaming around this room. Are you all self-employed? Good. Stop it. Right. Okay. Helen, then there's a question for you here on other taxes that could get cut. Yep. Business rates. So there's lots of lobbying at the moment. Tough time for the hospitality sector. Prices up. Consumers are down. They want some business rate cuts. Uh, People like you keep telling them that they shouldn't have them. Why shouldn't they have them and are they going to get them anyway? Okay, so big picture, business rates, you can kind of think of it as a combination of the best tax and the worst tax. It's the best tax in the sense that a lot of it is the tax on the land value. Um, and it's the worst tax because some part of it is on the actual business, on the actual building. And what you don't want is a tax that says, you know, you shouldn't, uh, you know, have a nice shiny building and, and do it up. Um, so, you know, big picture, I think we should move towards a land value tax and that wouldn't be a problem. So the problem with cutting business rates, if it is just genuinely temporary and you generally do it for a short period, then it probably does help the occupiers of the, of yeah. the business. Um, and then we can have an argument about, given everything that's in the economy, are, are the you know, are retail business the what people you want to help? Um, but if you have either permanent cuts or temporary cuts that keep being extended and therefore become expected to be permanent, what's going to happen is it's going to benefit the landlords. And the row here is about pandemic legacy giveaways basically that are left. Yeah, so we started, you know, you can see in the pandemic why, given that we'd made people forcibly shut their shops, why it was reasonable to say, actually, we're going to help these, uh, the, the occupiers of those businesses not, not make them pay a tax on a shop that's actually shut. I think you could see the rationale for that. 
Um, but as you keep going, you keep saying, I oh, will keep extending these business rates cuts and whether it's 75% or you know, there have been cuts for retail and hospitality. The more that, the longer they go on, the more it will be baked into basically into rent negotiations and therefore be passed back to the landlords. And I don't think anyone in the country is arguing that we should be, as, as a group particularly, helping the landlords of, of, of business properties. So, but there's lots, I mean, the Labour Party have also talked about business rates here. I think there's lots of confusion about business rates. What we clearly need to do is look at the business rate system, you know, have more re-frequent re um, revaluations, work out what to do with transitional relief when you actually shock somebody with a bigger bill, um, and move away from this kind of constant tinkering in little rates to help and to help some subset. It's just not clear what we're trying to do with the tax. Are they going to get it? Probably. You think we are going to cut well, it? Well, it depends, it depends what, um, I guess, how expensive it is and how, how tight they are for, for funding. Um, I mean, not definitely, but it, I, I assume so it's, it's... not. It's not like a fuel duty equivalent? No, I think fuel duties, I'd just bake it in. Yeah. Um, I think this is probably on the long list of if we can announce something that says we're going to be help, you know. And the retail, it's, it's meant... I'm sure it's meant to conjure up images of the high street, right, and, to, you know, and if people feeling good about that. Although, weirdly, they, want you to feel, they don't want to go and shop there. None of them, if, if they were shopping there, it'd be better, but you want people to feel good about, about maybe, maybe you do want to shop there one day or somebody else wants to shop there. Or, um. <coughs> right, OK. That's, let's, do, let's do tax rises then. So we won't do loads on the tax rises that have already happened because they've already happened, people. Don't read about them in the report. You'll, we've talked about that loads. 40, 50 billion pounds worth of tax rises through threshold freezes, uh, corporation tax rates up. So let's do the tax rises ahead of us. So George, I was trying to think, when was the last general election when the governing party went into the election with tax rises actually announced for after the election? The, um, is it 2010? We had that, remember the jobs tax row? Was that the last time? God, yeah. That's that, that was a national insurance tax rise, not tax cuts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Has there been any since then? I can't think of any. Can you? How um, does it How does it go generally to pre-announce tax cuts for after the election? It's not. Uh, it's not great because it goes straight on your opponent's election leaflets and literature. I suppose they're, they're quite chunky too. I mean, seventeen billion quid's not nothing. Exactly. I mean, I think the thing, the whole thing about the freezing of the thresholds is it's. It's massive, obviously, in terms of its fiscal implication, but in terms of your ability to stick it on an election leaflet, it's it's something that people don't quite understand in the real world. But you know, it's the the reason they're doing it, obviously, is because it going back to the boring technical debate about headroom. It's because it's what, what it it's that promise which then allows you to come up with the pre-election tax cuts. But it's it's very unusual, very unusual, and um, obviously, it's another part of limiting Labour's room for manoeuvre in terms of tax rises when they get in. Yes. Sorry, if they get in, I should say. Steve wants to know, Helen and James, you can do this one over there. Steve wants to know whoever wins the election, although he's hinting that he thinks it might be Labour here. Um, uh, what? You uh, heard what, it here first. What tax rises? What, what, what might be the ones that like come out of the woodwork after the election? <coughs> Helen, what do you reckon? Oh, I don't know. Um, so obviously you've mentioned the non-doms and private schools. So Labour, I think, will tell us in the manifesto about a, a small subset of tax rises. But there'll be pretty niche issues and you know, interesting and lots of good things to debate there, but there'll be the low billions. So there'll be um, a complete minority sport in terms of overall fiscal revenue. I think they're going to have a tough time because if you want to raise big sums quickly without doing very much, then you've got to look at the big rates. Or you've got to look at income tax, NICS, VAT uh, kind of things. And if you're not going to rise, if you're not going to raise the main rates, you can still get a lot of money, but you have to do more. You have to do a bigger collection of things to get the money. I mean, if I were Labour, I, they must. I, mean, I would expect them to be thinking about the fact that we tax capital income at a much lower rate than 
uh, earned income is a tricky one for them because I think it's a good reason you don't want to announce big increases in capital gains tax, for example, because you have people selling their assets quickly. So I don't think you want to put it on a big poster in front of the election. Um, for lots of reasons, but that's, for lots of that's reasons, one of them. But, but that's one of them. <laughs> but even if you're going to target to say it's just rich people and we're going to, you know, yeah. I think you still don't want to do it even for very economic reasons. Um, but we do tax, uh, you know, dividends, capital gains, uh, businesses lower than employment income. If you wanted to have a be a big start of the pilot, do a big reform, think about how you do that, you could think about tackling that issue. So is CGT um, is your most likely, do you think? I'd have it up there, yeah. James, what's your top one? Well, I, I suppose Labour have also said they're going to um, reverse the lifetime allowance uh, pensions change. So, I, I mean, this is just another in the weeds, um, uh, small tinkering round, but, but, you know, uh, we'll raise some money. So I, I think we'll see more of that. I think it'll be really interesting to see, you know, exactly what Labour do in terms of um, highlighting what the government are doing here, because, you know, they don't, as, as we were talking about, they don't want to draw a, a dividing line here. But the big thing to keep in mind is that the reason we're raising taxes is we've got these higher interest rates. So we're spending more, about half of the spending more relative to the pre-pandemic period is, is down to higher rates. So that's you know part of the reason why we're reversing some of that is we're actually seeing lower rates. So keep keep that in mind. You've got that that lens of where interest rates are. So there's but there's also these spending pressures and that that will, you know, that's pushing us in the direction of raising taxes. So the debate we're currently having about the election, as we've been hearing, is completely removed for the one we need to have going forward. Mm. Well, just be a bit, well, I was going to say just be a bit. So if you want to be perkier on the we don't definitely need big tax cuts after the election, tax rises, sorry, you're basically one hoping the government doesn't announce too many tax cuts beforehand. And secondly, you're hoping rates come down a bit. Like you can easily, you know, it's perfectly feasible. If rates come down to like three and a half percent on any kind of sustainable basis, you've knocked a percent off your tax to GDP problem. Um, so it's like substantial, it would matter a lot. So I don't think we should be totally confident in like, they definitely need big tax rises on that side of things. They probably do, um, but you know, what, if we've learned anything over the last 15 years, it's we have no idea what the long-term rate of interest rates. Um, I think it's more that it's an opportunity, is. right? It's more if you're going to do anything, the earlier you do it, the better you do it. And also, again, hopefully whoever's in power is going to be thinking about the fact that we need higher growth as well, right? And there's no magic bullet here. There's no just like tweak this thing. Oh, now you sound like Keir Starmer. Um, <laughs> but, but I think it's true that we do need higher growth. So, if, but, but and reform tax will be part of that. But it's hard work. I think you want to start early with like you can't fix all of it, I guess, in a parliament. But start somewhere and start early. And you could do tax rises and tax cuts. But um, given the fact that they've boxed themselves in on the big revenue raises on VAT, yeah. um, income tax, and national insurance, and so on, then your suspicions got to be that they're going to be looking at. Some of the kind of people who read the Financial Times, for example. What? Disgraceful. <laughs> and you know, I mean, we've documented uh, at great length the efforts the Labour Party has been making to woo business um, and people who you know, typically read. This the is FT. George plugging his FT magazine piece from Saturday, which you all read, obviously. Obviously, super, yeah, very, very, um, very well worth reading. But, um, <laughs> but the very modest of you, George. <laughs> I was trying to be nicer. You didn't have to be so immodest, but it didn't save you from it. So there was this um, event at the Oval, wasn't there, about the, um, I think at the beginning of February, where they made this commitment not to raise corporation tax rates as well. There's no twenty-five percent cap. And you think, well, what else are they going to do? Where, because they are going to need probably need more money to fix yeah. all the problems we've been discussing. And um, capital gains tax reform is one thing you could go for. I mean, think back to Gordon Brown. He did a similar sort of prawn cocktail offensive, reassure business, and then 
went for the dividend tax relief, didn't it? Which although also, although cut CGT a lot. Yes. Yeah, like he's actually a big CGT cutter, which is unexpected in some ways. Yeah. Reliefs, they'll go for reliefs, right? There's a lot of money in relief, so Pensions. it's hard to get, but they'll go for a bunch of I don't them. know what you guys think, but pension tax relief seems to me to be the one thing that we've written, been writing about ever since mm. George Osborne considered doing something about this high, high rate. Well, Jeremy Hunt, has, Jeremy Hunt has accidentally provided the means by which stealth cuts to pension tax relief will happen in future, which is he has made it easier to cut the lump sum, the maximum lump sum that you can take tax-free, which is the main way you get your tax relief mm. nowadays that's left in the pension tax system. He's basically now set a, a cash figure of how much the maximum it can be. So that, just bringing that down, and it'll still be huge, like bring it down to 200,000, bring it down to 150,000, so still big lump sums, capping it will make a big chunk of difference. And unlike most pension tax relief savings, could get you some money-ish in the like foreseeable future. They could do some clever things too, like bring pensions into inheritance tax. They wouldn't raise very much right now because... Remind everyone what we mean by that. So at the moment, if you, you shouldn't use your pension um, as a pension. You should use it as an inheritance tax vehicle, really, because pensions aren't into inheritance tax. And that didn't matter much historically because everyone annuitised and you didn't die with a big pension. Whereas now with pension freedoms, you can die with a big pension and it's a good way to pass on money. Um, so at the moment, it wouldn't have a big, big effect because most people who have been dying have been the ones who have annuitised, not the ones who had the pension freedoms. It's going to get bigger over time so you could bring it in now knowing it's going to help you have to fix it before yeah. similarly inheritance tax revenues are due to double so you could start getting rid of rid of some reliefs or doing some things before it gets you know more eye-catching that's it right let's do a vote i want to do a post-election vote before we start wrapping up what is going to be the biggest post-election surprise is the question now we haven't touched much on the spending side um, but we're going to cover it in here. So we showed you some of the spending issues that are going to get discussed after the election, which is basically, are you actually going to end local government and uh, the police? Probably not, so the numbers won't happen. But there is another thing going on, which is if you look at what's happening on the welfare spending side, the welfare bill on the forecast, I'm not saying this will definitely happen, but on the forecast is rising quite fast over the next five years. Why is it rising? Because of ill health and disability related benefits. Um, spending rising quite fast. You'll have heard that in the headlines about being a sicker population. The, um, any, the, deed, the Treasury will definitely, whoever wins the election, be looking at the speed of growth in those numbers and saying, that can't happen. Mm. And then you're into a, what should we do about it? And if we're honest, Britain isn't having a very good debate about what we should do about it, and it's really hard. But So will that happen? Will we get more tax rises, which is kind of what we've been discussing here? Will they actually deliver those 17% cuts? That'll be the surprise that they get delivered, we're talking nonsense, turned out they're completely deliverable. Um, or will some economic growth turn up? And that'll be a nice surprise. Um, that's the one I'm hoping for. The, um, so come on then, let's go around. George, what's gonna be the biggest surprise? Do you know something? Well, I, you can make one up. This is well. not part of the narrative of the moment, but I think that economic growth might surprise mm. on the upside. Um, there was a very good article in The Economist about this just before Christmas, where they, they looked on the Yep. counterintuitively why things might look a little bit better for an incoming government or whichever party um, than people think and you know the American economy is doing well um, there may be a change of government might provide a sort of a reset moment yep. and people might look at Britain in a slightly different way so I would say of all those things the thing that will and obviously the most benign thing that we could consider would be improved economic growth. Very perky George. Helen. I was going to say the same, but for sort of different reasons. I think it might surprise on the upside a little bit, but it would be a massive surprise if we actually got back to economic growth that actually helped in the kind of debt was coming down, you know, yeah. things were, it, our, our constraints have been eased. So it might help a little bit around the margins when we talk about fiscal headroom. But in terms of the big picture, ageing population, high debt, need to meet net zero kind of things, I, I don't see economic growth surprising on the upside in a way that it really 
reduce those trade-offs. So then that would be the biggest surprise if it actually happened. Okay. So we, we've got the weakest 15 years of growth since um, the Great Depression, if you look at similar periods. So it, fe it, feels, it feels like we, we must be able to do better. I think out of all of these, the public service cuts being delivered would be the biggest surprise. I mean, we, we unless you change what the, fundamentally what the public sector is actually doing, it just seems incredibly difficult to deliver these you know, up to a fifth of unprotected department cuts when if you look at the Institute for Government performance tracker, there are problems across the public sector. So, and we, you know, we've heard about the, the polling in terms of exactly people wanting their public service to do better. So if those were delivered, I mean, it would be quite something and, you know, uh, not obviously, um, you know, something that would benefit whoever's the next government. So I'd be pretty surprised if we did Very good. Right, let's see the answer. And then I'm going to give you a clue. You're all going to have to answer one question, which is on a scale of naught to 10, more tax rises. Well, that's not really a surprise, people. But yes, those are. That, <laughs> that's the most likely surprise, I suppose. I mean, maybe the question's not particularly clear. Yeah, OK, I mean, you're, you're basically right. Did I say that was happening? <laughs> yeah. Very good. OK, right, right. the sandwich. Let's, to wrap us up then, on a scale of naught to 10, each of you, this is going to happen on the 6th. We've talked about what's going to happen, but let's do the politics. <coughs> Nought to 10. Nought, this will have zero effect on the general election, to 10. Total transformation. Uh, totally change the political weather. No one has saw any of this coming. Everyone has to rip up their newspaper columns and start again. Richard Sunak, govern forever. Uh, what's it going to be? George, Nought to 10. Three. Three? <laughs> I want a bit of chit-chat around it. Oh, do you? <laughs> make, make some effort. Show your work. <laughs> Why is it well, three? Well, look, I mean, given, given the fact that the thinking around the autumn statement was you've got to start doing your big tax moves get now. Going, get, get going. Get going so people get into their pay packets, though nobody in this room seems to have noticed. Unfortunately. It's 2p off your income. Un you should have noticed people. Um, and I think, the, I think the problem is the closer you get to the election, the more people see any kind of fiscal giveaway as a pre-election bribe. So I think, I think, you know, it feels a bit like the tide has turned, doesn't it? At the moment, but still some ways to go. Anything can change. Have you learned anything in British politics in the last few years? It's not particularly stable exactly. or indeed strong. Right, James, not to 10. Well, I mean, the government clearly want to have this distinction of we're the, the tax cutting party, the others are the tax raising party. You know, they, they've already had a go at that with the awesome statement. We'll get more. So I, I you know. I think there'll be a sort of five-ish in Ooh. terms of having oh, some, some success in trying to move. And, and Labour don't seem to be, you know, pushing against this and shifting the debate. But I think as we get closer to the election, some of the points George was making about whether this actually makes a difference, that'll, um, you know, that'll be important. And we'll, we'll actually see, you know, some of the broader economic debate. Okay. Coming I'm out. putting you down as enthusiastic for Rishi there. Right. Helen, not to 10. So before I head, I, was, I think we were aligned. I was going to say four on the basis that, Look at that. I think Look it's... That. Um, Dangerous cluster. Nothing, nothing's really going to change. It'll be the biggest tax raise in Parliament on, on record. Labour will be able to hammer that home. Um, people aren't going to notice a huge difference. We haven't talked about things like mortgages. People are still going through mortgage. My mortgage comes up in May. I'm still thinking about that quite a lot. Um, lots of other things are still working with the system. So yeah. I think that's not going to change massively. I think the reason I'm a four and not a zero is that they'll be able to do something that's like a here's a down payment, something catchy that says like we are, we are signalling something. It'll have some effect, but nothing. None of the big stuff is changing here. Right. Well, on a naught to ten, where ten is excellent, the panel has been ten. So well done. Can we all thank them, everybody. The um, You've all been like, I don't know, at least a six or seven as an audience. Have a good day, everyone, and we'll see you at the next Resolution Foundation event soon. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. 
You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.